Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Podcast. Today, we are joined by Alex Budak, a faculty member at University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Becoming a Changemaker. Alex, thank you so much for coming to the show today. How are you doing? Oh, Michael, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me and doing really, really well. Thanks. I think it's more my pleasure than yours. Anyway, it's late for you. So again, sorry for making you like stay around this late in the day, but I really appreciate it. I really wanted to have this conversation. And before we get into the main part, can we give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context? Sure. Well, I guess first I should say that the new identity I have is that of a fairly new dad. So when you say time, who knows what time is anymore <laughs> with a little one running around. So uh, totally fine. How new is new though? Uh, 20 months. 20 okay, months. that's new. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, thank you for the kind introduction. So I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley Haas, uh, and I'm a social entrepreneur. So before joining academia, I co-founded the social venture called startsomegood.com. And our goal was to democratize the way that we fund social ventures. Never easy to raise money, as many of your listeners know, for a social venture. But there's often a catch-22 that you can't raise money until you can prove your impact. But how do you prove your impact until you have the money to actually launch a pilot? And so we try to come in there with a bit of risk capital and community-driven fundraising to support change makers all around the world in getting started. So, but where does that come from? You don't just wake up one day and say, I want to start, I want to do something called Start Some Good, and I want to start raising capital for, for social enterprises, right? It's got to come from somewhere. Oh, that's right. So I grew up in the Silicon Valley Bay Area, so oh. kind of always surrounded by entrepreneurship. But the kind of traditional entrepreneurship just never resonated with me. I never kind of had the dreams of launching a company and flipping it to Google or to Apple. Not right. that there's anything wrong with that. That just isn't what motivated me. Uh, but I had the chance to go live and work in Ahmedabad, India for a bit. Um, and while I was there, I did some work volunteering with a local community group. Um, now, this story isn't about me. I hardly made a dent in terms of their impact, but I did have the chance to just see firsthand this amazing grassroots organization yeah. working with girls from the local community, um, using sport as a tool for teaching healthy habits and leadership. And that's where I sort of had that aha moment, which was that there's change makers literally all around the world, just like this Aminabad sports group. But can, I ask, can, I ask you, can I ask you this though? So you grew up in Silicon Valley. Did you get a sense as a kid, like- I don't know where in Silicon Valley you grew up, but I was actually talking to somebody in Bangalore a couple of days ago, right? And Bangalore as a Silicon Valley style city has changed a lot in the last 25 years, right? As India has become more technologically advanced. Did you get a sense? Because I want to make a I want to make a difference between growing up in Silicon Valley and then going to India too, right? Like, did you know what was going on as a kid when you were in Silicon Valley? Do you know what I mean? Like were your friends or your friends' parents involved in working at Google, working at Apple and all that kind of stuff? And you're just like, I can't believe this is happening here. Like, did you know that? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's like the fish swimming in water doesn't know that the fish is wet. That's my point. It's just the yeah. environment that you're in. But um, I think it did have a sense that things were pretty special. And that was, of course, at kind of the height of techno optimism, uh, where people really believed in technology to, to change the world. Uh, right. Not that we should completely lose track of that, but um, most of my friend's parents would work for startups, or if they were lawyers, they would work as a lawyer for a startup. Uh, and my mom uh, worked at Google in the, the somewhat early days, which was great as a high schooler kid, because I got to take advantage of the free cafeteria food wow. uh, and all the junk food before they got really healthy at Google. <laughs> so, so go back to this India thing. When you went to India, was there like a palpable difference between what was happening there and what was happening in Silicon Valley? And did it change the way you viewed back to those experiences that you had when you were in Silicon Valley, if you know what I mean? 
For sure. I mean, one thing I'll give Ahmedabad a lot of credit for, this is in the state of Gujarat. Um, it's a very entrepreneurial place. Yeah. And so I saw entrepreneurial hustle in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just about um, you know coding and creating apps and scale, but people had a very entrepreneurial mindset. And I think that helped to make the transition for me between, we often think of entrepreneurship as sort of an act, you build a company. Uh, but I think there I learned more about entrepreneurship as a mindset, sort of a way of seeing the world, seeing opportunities. Yeah, really, really interesting. So can you just, you, you were talking about this and talking about change makers being everywhere. Was it surprising to you in India when you got there? Right, obviously you're coming out of Silicon Valley. So you look around, like you said, you like the fish swimming in water, you don't know, but now you're out of your own water. Were you surprised by the impact that people were having there just by that change in mindset that you were just talking about? I don't know if I was surprised, but I was certainly inspired. I was inspired to see the way that people were taking action um, in support of their local community. That I think there was this much stronger community feeling than I was used to feeling in Silicon Valley. And this, um, I think that really inspired me, connected with me, and also just changing some of the notions that you have going into it. So, you know, we t or I tended to think that change had to come from the big institutions, that the World Bank, the UN, and there's a role for that, to be sure. Um, but I think I came to more fully appreciate the grassroots lever of change. And if there's this grassroots lever of change, it kind of means that anybody can do this. Is is that fair? That's the best part of it. Absolutely. But how does it manifest itself, right? So you come home, how long were you there? I was there for a few months. For a few months. And you know, you said you were a social entrepreneur. What, were you always planning on becoming a teacher and a faculty member at like such a great university, if you know what I mean. And I'm also really curious about this. Like I taught a course a couple of years ago when I first stood up in front of those students, I felt this real responsibility, if that makes sense. And I mm -hmm. was probably more nervous doing that than I was doing anything else. What was that like for you? Well, yeah, I've tried on a lot of different hats. And so I never, ever sought out to be a, a faculty member. Um, I never honestly considered myself a, a great student. I was a fine student, but not a, not a great student. So I certainly did not expect that. But as you sort of look back, you know, Steve Jobs talks about connecting the dots, looking backwards. Yeah. When I look back at everything I've done, at my core, I'm a teacher. That's what I love doing is I love being an educator. I love teaching. So even in the social enterprise, I'd spend a lot of time teaching people about how to be a social entrepreneur, how to raise money. And so that teaching thing has always been kind of inside of me. But it wasn't until I got to UC Berkeley where I think I really felt that full permission to let the inner educator in myself out. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about community. And part of the reason why is I was on the phone yesterday with a woman named Pearl Agarwal, who is a venture capitalist based in India. And she was telling me this story about how she grew up in a small town. And really, the, the community feeling of this small shopping street where her family ran a business was such that it was very communal organized. And she looks at the way she invests as well as this community of entrepreneurs. And I'm curious if you can just dig a little bit deeper on that and why that's so important, particularly as it comes to making changes, right? How it helps to have this community around you to be able to do that. For sure. And again, it can do a bit of a contrast with Silicon Valley, where I think we tend to do sort of the heropreneurship, right? We put the lone entrepreneur up on a, on a pedestal. But I think the moment where the intersection of community and change making really set in for me was when I was uh, just outside of Istanbul in Turkey. So I was fortunate enough to be a recipient of a fellowship. And so I was there with 19 other social entrepreneurs, uh, all young, so all under age 30 at the time from very different countries, very different walks of life. So just among our group, we had people from Bosnia, Peru, Brazil, South Africa, Uganda, Australia, Poland, UK, I mean, just all around the world. So I remember we were just starting to get to know each other a little bit and we decided to go for a swim. And so we're standing on, on the rocks, uh, water down below us. 
sun about to set on the horizon. And we were sort of um, you know, standing right there, cheering each other on and count one, two, three. And then we leapt into the water. And then I just think, distinctly remember as we we're splashing around in the water, looking around and being like, wow, this is pretty incredible what I have right here. That, <laughs> you know, we come from very different backgrounds, very, very different walks of life. And we have different social ventures. We have different things from one person who's trying to work with uh, cancer patients in Mexico to um, new media in Poland, right? All kinds of different ventures. Our theories of change may be slightly different, but the fact that we were all trying to create change in our local community meant that we had so much more in common than we had differences, despite being from all around the world. Um, and I felt this amazing sense of kinship there. We all came together in this sort of magical moment. And even now it's been about 12 years since then. We still have a WhatsApp group and occasionally I'll get a ping. And when I if you see that ping from that community, I feel like, okay, these are people that are still committed to, to leading change. And we're kind of all in this together, no matter where in the world we are. When you're teaching, do you get the sense that it's important for you to tell stories like this? Not, not, not just because storytelling itself is a great way to educate and to teach and to share experiences, but also because there's this international aspect to it as well. In the sense that sometimes getting out of where you're used to, right? Like you said, like just to get back to this fish in the water thing, right? If you grew up in Silicon Valley, you spend your whole life in Silicon Valley. And frankly, if you spend your whole life anywhere, you you don't get to grow your own perspective. But do you feel like being with people from Poland, being with people from Turkey, being with people from Mexico changes the way you think about not just change making, but the world itself? Absolutely. I mean, it changes the way you see the world and changes the way you see yourself in the world. You feel the sense of connection. And it's not to say that you can't ever feel that, right? Because a digital technology is actually great at connecting us with people. But there's something really powerful, which is just sitting down, having a beer with someone and having a conversation, not knowing where the conversation will lead and just letting your curiosity guide you. That is really eye-opening in a, in a really wonderful way. So you started a course about change making at Berkeley as well, right? Yeah, that's right. What was the genesis of this? So this is just a dream come true to be teaching this class. It's the class I, I wish I could have taken when I was starting my own change maker journey at university. And like so many things in life, there's a lot of good luck that happens. So I had joined UC Berkeley in a staff role and then went to have a conversation with the person who sort of oversees all the curriculum at Haas, which is the business school at UC Berkeley. And I was going in for career advice, but I think he could tell that my heart wasn't really in it. And so I distinctly remember she said, but Alex, what do you really want to do? And somehow in that moment, it just became clear to me. I said, well, you know, what I really want to do is teach. And I assumed he would just sort of say like, oh, that's nice. You know, come back in 20 years and we'll see. But to my surprise, he said, okay, what do you want to teach? And it just, I knew it. I, what I want to teach is becoming a change maker. I even knew the name of the class. I knew in that moment, that's what I wanted to teach. And to my shock and delight, he said, okay, show me a syllabus. We'll go from there. Let's see if we can make this happen. I shook his hand, leapt out of my seat. Uh, closed the door to his office, immediately pulled out my phone and Googled how to create a syllabus because I had never taught before. Uh, but that started the journey of being able to teach uh, this class, which is a dream come true. And what kind of fear was there around that? I mean, I did I did a similar thing, although somebody asked me to do it. Yeah. And it was very feelful for me. I'd never been a professor, a teacher, anything. And I had no idea how to put that together. What was that like? What was that like for you? So here's where there's just something about it. Just me being a natural teacher. It was fun and it wasn't that hard. I don't mean that in like, in a sense that like, you know, I'm just naturally gifted at teaching, but, but just like, I think I was so mission driven that it just came and flowed very naturally. I use a lot of empathy. So I was really able to put myself in the shoes of my, or how I thought when I was 22, 
and just started my changemaker career, all the stories as you talked about, you know, all these different perspectives of changemakers from around the world, all the books I had read. And I felt like this is just the class I meant to create. Now, to be clear, if the dean had said, hey, Alex, go teach a class on accounting, I'd be paralyzed with fear. There's no <laughs> chance I would get, get off and do that. But when it came to teaching and creating this class on changemaking, it just felt right. But isn't that part of the whole philosophy around building something? Look, we talked about this before we started recording, right? When we were prepping. It's this idea that you can't separate the person from the thing that they do really well. And this idea that like it was fun and it wasn't that hard. Maybe that's the title of this episode in a way, besides <laughs> becoming a changemaker, right? But you know what I mean? If you really love this thing that you're doing, it shouldn't be that difficult for you to do it super well. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be a massive moneymaker or a massive success, but it just means the preparation and getting ready for it shouldn't be that hard. Do you teach this as well? Like, is that part of this or no? Well, I think what you're getting at, which I agree with, is that when we're fundamentally involved in our work in this deeply meaningful way, it's an yeah. extension of ourselves. Exactly. And so students often remark to me that they think there's no one else that could teach this class because it's such an embodiment of my values and my beliefs that I put out into the world. Um, and so I do think there's some aspect of like when you really find that fit, that it can feel almost magical. Uh, there's this concept called flow, which is where you kind of lose track of time and you're just yeah. so in things. And believe me, I've had a lot of different careers where I have not felt flow, the opposite of it. But <laughs> yeah. when I'm teaching, a couple hour class can just fly by because I just feel that sense of flow. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was a kid playing sports, right? You could get into this zone. And we used to say that like, if you were playing basketball, the hoop sometimes seemed like it was really wide. You know what I mean? Like you just knew when you threw the ball up, it was going in. And other times you weren't in that flow or in that zone. And it felt like no matter how many times you put the ball up there, it just wasn't going in. I guess that's got to be the same kind of feeling. Yeah. Well, as a middle school JV basketball player. I think I never felt the rim be that big. So I don't know that I've ever felt <laughs> flow on the basketball court, but I know, I know the experience you're talking about. Yeah. And there's something magical about that. How long have you been teaching this course, by the way? Uh, since 2019. So a few okay, years. Okay. So three years. And do you feel like it's changed over time? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you feel like you know now more about how to teach this and that the responses that you're getting from the kids have changed or, or is it just, you know what I mean? There's this saying, which says that when one person teaches, two people learn. And I love that. So I think I'm very much shaped by my students, just as I hope they're shaped by me. I would say that the infrastructure, the core of the class hasn't changed very much. The key lessons, I think, are still in place. But how I teach them, some of the stories that I tell, those are all very much shaped and evolved based on the class. And it's wonderfully symbiotic that I'll put ideas out there. I'll hear stories of how students have gone on to use these principles in their own life. And then that becomes stories I can then tell the next generation of students. So it really feeds into itself nicely. I want to get to the core of the course in a second, because I'm super interested in this whole idea of making change. Do you get some students that take the course that are skeptical when they join? They're like, yeah, this isn't going to mean anything. And, you know, three classes in or four classes in, they're just like so into it where you've changed their mindset to use some of your terminology. And that's got to feel great, no? I love it. Yeah. I welcome all students, no matter where they are on their changemaker journey. But I remember yeah. one student very well. Her name was Hannah. And I'm used to teaching and seeing a lot of smiles. And so when I looked out and saw her kind of crossed arms and dour look, like it really stood out to me. So I reached out to her because as a faculty member, you never know what internal battles people are fighting or what's going exactly. on. And so I reached out to her and she said that she so badly wanted to be a change maker, but this class was in fall. So just coming off of a summer internship where she tried to lead a diversity, equity, inclusion um, project. Okay. And she just had the worst experience. No one believed in her. No one trusted her. She got started, got shut down, and she left that feeling like not only had her dreams been dashed, maybe change wasn't possible. Like maybe it just mm -hmm. wasn't a thing. Um, and I 
welcomed her honesty. I appreciated that. And then we worked together in office hours and some sessions to help her change that change maker mindset. And one of the most magical moments that I've had as a, as a teacher is we do a project called a change maker of the week. So I have okay. each student choose one change maker who inspires them and make a presentation to the class. So that way we okay. meet a diversity of different change makers. So this student chose a change maker who inspired her, someone who is not a household name, but who really spoke to her values, her principles. So this student, Hannah, presented to the class. And then that day, I got an email from another student who said, wow, Hannah's presentation completely changed my mindset on what it means to be a change maker. Can you just thank her? Because that just made all the difference to me. And so then I had the wonderful feeling as a faculty to get to forward this note on to Hannah and say, look what you just did. You just became a change maker. You helped someone else become a change maker. And there, I think in that moment, she finally found that faith in herself again. But this gets back to like, if what did you say? One teacher to say that thing again? Because I, I, I didn't write it down. Say it again. <laughs> when one teaches to learn. Right. But here's the thing. It's just, this is so subtle to me, right? But you've now encouraged one of the students to contact another one of the students. This has to be the most powerful interaction, right? In a way, because they're now working with each other and they're feeding off each other's maybe energy. And I'm really curious, like, I feel like in the 60s and 70s, and this kind of dates myself, I feel like, you know, with the Peace Corps and things like that, that people felt like it was possible to make change. But today, it just the world feels like an overwhelming place. And I'm, I'm sure it's not just to me. Maybe it's just because things move so quickly. Maybe it's because we're overwhelmed with information. I'm curious about your perspective on this. Do we feel today, do we feel like it's less possible to make a change than we did 50 years ago? Or is it just this idea that there's so much more information out there, so it seems harder? I'm really trying to get my head around this. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, my sense is that... Um, it feels a lot harder to make change, especially because we're starting to realize that so many of the changes we need to make aren't surface level, they're systemic. And people are starting yeah. to realize that when it comes to systemic change, think about something like climate justice or racial justice, um, that's not something easily solved by a single person. It can yeah. feel out of our grasp. Alongside that, I talk with my students a lot because I tell them, hey, if you start feeling frustrated with the world that you're inheriting, you have every right to feel frustrated. You've got a lot of systemic challenges that were no, no uh, fault of your own that you've inherited. But I also tell them that you've got to stay hopeful, that you can't let people take away that hope, that despite what the hand you've been dealt, you've got to find reasons and find optimism, find belief that you can actually do something about it because the world needs you. So feel that anger, feel that fear, but that's a call to action. Yeah. When, when you... Talk to people, talk to your students about this weekly change maker. Do you encourage them to to find change makers that aren't household names? I find like you talked about this hero entrepreneurship. And I think we also have this idea of hero change makers as well. You know, this idea is if you're not Mother Teresa or if you're not like mm -hmm. Mahatma Gandhi, that you can't do anything. But if you look around, do you encourage them to look away from that and look around in their like day-to-day -day life and think, I know somebody who's doing something that's actually quite impactful and I'd rather focus on them because that's closer to me. And then it makes it feel like I can do it more. Does that make sense? Very, very much so. So about half of my students choose someone who's not a household name. So it could be a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, uh, a boss, a manager, a friend, a teammate. Um, and I love those. And I think those are the ones that are the most inspiring. So I'll say that every single semester I've taught the class uh, one person has chosen Elon Musk. So everyone always chooses Musk. Oh, no. Why? <laughs> 
for his ability to question the status quo, but we also get into some of the the nuances yeah. of his character. But um, I love when people choose household names they've never heard of. And then I make yeah. an ask of them and I say, hey, you know, you've done this amazing presentation, written this nice paper. Um, why don't you share it with that person? Why don't you reach out to them and say, hey, this is why I think you're an amazing change maker. Uh, and some really powerful things have happened as a result. So I want to get back to this because I think this is really important. Right. In other words, class should be super interactive, right? It shouldn't just be a teacher in the front of the class telling students how to do things and even giving them assignments to do, like picking a weekly change maker. You do get them to come. And how many kids are in this class? Um, I like to keep it small. So there's a huge wait list for the class, but I only allow 40 students in. And how long, but the, the class isn't 40 weeks long. So not everybody gets to come up and present. Do people stand in front of the class and present? Like, how does that work? Well, so one of the things I do to be inclusive as a faculty member is I give people the choice. So some people love presenting in person. Yeah. Other people prefer a video. So I give them the choice. So about oh. half will do in person, half will do videos. Um, and then we have, you know, a couple per week. Okay. So you do a couple per week. Do you feel like, again, you're changing the lives of these individual students, public speaking, standing up in front of a class full of 40 people, even making a video that gets played in front of 40 people? It's hard work, right? And something they probably haven't done before. Do you feel like you're changing that part of them as well? To the extent that storytelling is powerful, that being able to do this is super impactful. And do you feel like you unlocking something in that respect too? I mean, I certainly hope so. And I'm, I'm very moved by the the kind notes and words I receive from, from students. But you know, I think it all starts with a feeling that in the classroom, I work really hard to create a feeling of psychological safety. Yeah. Students know that they can take some risks and they're safe to take risks. And I think so often in our education systems, students don't feel that. They're just trying to memorize things that are on a test. And it's all about, did you get an A minus or an A? And so I try to make them feel like, okay, they actually have space to, to take chances, to try things, to be curious, to be bold. Because of course, the truth is when it comes to change making, there isn't a grade on change making. No one will ever say yeah. like, Michael, pretty good job on your change making. That's a B plus, right? No one will ever right. tell you that. So right. we need to move beyond the extrinsic motivation and move intrinsically. But I think you need to have that psychological safety to know that, okay, this is a place where I can actually take risks. How do you teach them about, like, you know, taking risks is great, right? But there's this risk reward analysis that they have to do. And sometimes when you try to make a change or try to do anything, you don't achieve what you're trying to achieve, right? How do we teach people that there's learning inside of, you know, not getting what you expected to get? Like, I feel like life is this gigantic scientific method. I have a hypothesis, right? So I want to make a change. I'm just going to try to put it in your terms and tell me where I'm wrong here. But I have this hypothesis. And then everything is kind of an experiment, particularly at that age, right? And I experiment and then I have an outcome, but that outcome may not meet my hypothesis. We can call it failure or not failure, right? But if you look at it in those terms, I mean, every scientist fails every single day. How do you teach them about this in the context of the change making as well? Well, I quite literally teach that actually. One of my favorite studies that came out last year, it was done by Italian researchers. And so they looked at uh, entrepreneurs that were in an incubator in Italy. And they had a control group and um, an experimental group. And the only difference is they taught half of the entrepreneurs the scientific method. They taught them hypothesis testing and so on. And what they wow. found is with that one small intervention, those that had learned the scientific method were more likely to pivot, to change directions, and were much more likely to increase their revenues. All because if you think about it, like you said, a scientist isn't sitting in a lab and going, oh, that hypothesis didn't work out. I'm a terrible scientist. No, <laughs> you, you have curiosity. You, you put a test out there and you see what, what happens as a result. And so I actually teach students that to say, how can we find ways to take the sting out of failure? But that's one thing. You know, there, there's intellectually, you can understand that. But I also try to get them to feel 
viscerally what it's like to fail and that failure isn't fatal. So after a lecture where we've talked about failure, what we can learn from failure, how failure is an inevitable and inextricable part of being a change maker, I put up a slide which simply has two words, go fail. And students yeah. sort of look around and they're laughing or is this guy serious? Go, I'm serious. The next slide comes up. They have 15 minutes. They have to go leave the classroom and they can't come back until they've been rejected. They have to ask for something, get a no, and then come back. And so these super high achieving students start feeling really uncomfortable, really nervous. Um, this professor actually wants them to go out and fail on purpose, but they leave the classroom. And again, psychological safety, I tell them, hey, if you're scared about this, I'll be in the front of the room, I'll mentor you, I'll coach you, you know, get you ready. But every student has to go leave and they have to go get rejected. The energy leaving is scared. The energy when they come <laughs> back is off the charts. So much so that a professor next door once knocked on the, the door and said, hey, can you keep it down? Because the energy was just so electric after students had gone out and failed. Uh, and that's because two things happen. So about one third of students expect they're going to get rejected, expect they'll get a no, and they actually get a yes. I think about one woman who went to the cafe and said, hey, can I have a free orange juice? And the person said, yeah, you can have a free orange juice. She's like, uh-oh, <laughs> well, I'm supposed to fail. Uh, okay, can I have two orange juices? And he said, yeah, okay. And then finally she asked for the third one. Then he said she got a no, but you came back with orange juice for everyone, which was really nice. So oftentimes we set ourselves up for failure because we're sure we'll get rejected when we may actually get what we want. And then the second lesson, of course, is that sometimes we fail, we get rejected and it's not the end of things. No one laughs at you, you move on. Failure isn't fatal. So this is a this is a lesson that I've been teaching to my daughter, trying to have been teaching to my daughter forever, and that is no individual day is fatal, right? You know, she would come home from school and she'd be like, I just don't understand this thing. I can't get it. And I would just keep going over this idea that no individual day is fatal. I like to teach to people that all of life is a conversion problem, right? And I think it's just the flip side of what you're talking about here. You if you think everything converts between two and a half and three percent, you have to ask a hundred times to get two and a half to three conversions. But more importantly, you don't know when those conversions are going to happen in those 100 asks, right? It could happen right away. It could happen on the 98th and 99th yeah. and 100th. So you just don't know. But this idea, and I love this idea of taking these high-performing, but also high-expectation students and saying, go out and do something where you feel like you're going to fail. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, you're you're right on to it. That's exactly how I feel about this is like um, sometimes being a change maker, it's not always about brilliance. Sometimes it's about the willingness to just stand there and keep going in the face of rejection. Because if we're going to try to question the status quo, if we're going to shake things up, there's a lot of people who won't like that just naturally. There's the status yeah. quo bias. We tend to not like change. Uh, and so can you get more comfortable with, with the no's that will come inevitably? And that will be a superpower for you. Yeah. And so this is one of the things that I like to talk about too, is that if you're going to, if you look at everything like a conversion problem and you're trying to make change, in a way it's almost better if the first 50 answers are no, because you kind of become immune to it or maybe numb to it. And then you're like, wait a second, I can do anything and I didn't die kind of thing, <laughs> right? You know That's what I right. mean? For sure. And there's also a gift in failure. So we talk about not just failing, but kind of failing forward. So when someone rejects you, it's actually great feedback. You know, if someone just says no straight up, that's that's okay. But if they can say, no, this isn't for us and here's why, well, great that you got a bit of validated learning. You got some new insights you can take into your next pitch and you keep refining, keep refining until you really find that fit. So what, what type of kids take this class? These are undergraduate students. Yeah, and I keep saying kids, I'm sorry. Just It's just my age talking, right? And I've got a daughter who's 21 years old. So I, that's the way I think about it. But are the, these are undergrads, yeah? So I started off teaching undergraduates. Now I also okay. teach uh, graduate students and also teach in Berkeley's executive education program. So I also teach uh, executives as well. Uh, so the wide range of folks. 
do you see different responses depending on the different stages of life? You know yeah, what I mean? Like, I, and I'd love to see an exec go through this. Yeah, no, it, it's fun to see the different levels of it. Um, execs tend to be a bit more skeptical than the average <laughs> 21-year-old, as you can probably imagine. Uh, but 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 again, someone who's an executive is sitting with a lot of power and potential to create change, to create ripples of change. And especially when you're an executive, like working with 40, 50, 60-year-old folks, um, they're often managing large teams and they can yeah. think about those ripples of change as well. And so um, when they learn those lessons can be really powerful. So I think it's really interesting. Do, do you think that those students, particularly the undergrads, leave your class? Like, is it a first year class, a second year class? Because I feel like if they take your class when they're a freshman or maybe a second semester, for, you said it's in the fall, so it's got to be in the first semester, yeah? That it can change the way they look at the, the way they approach their other classes and maybe even the rest of their education, if that makes sense. Because they're like, wait a second. If one of the things that I get out of this course is that I can do anything, I can make micro changes, then I can make micro changes in me as well. Right. And if there's a mindset change that's taking place, it can actually be personally pretty powerful to go through this course and understand instead of only using these things that I'm learning in this class about other things that I want to change, if I can change myself as well and experiment and iterate and use this scientific method to make myself better, this can be really powerful stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's a powerful catalyst for personal professional growth. And I think um, it works for any age, but I do love getting to students um, on the earlier side, because I think it's um, really powerful. The earlier that you learn it, the more time you have for the lessons to compound. I could not agree with you more. Talk to me a little bit about the book. Writing a book is like an, <laughs> it's such a hard thing to do. You know what I mean? Like the output looks pretty easy. I got 700, whatever it is, number <laughs> of pages, right? It's got a cool cover on it. I probably have a publisher and an editor and I'm just like writing stuff every now and then, but the commitment is really hard. It's long. Like what, what was the impetus for writing the book and how long did it take you and how hard was that for you as well? Thanks for recognizing that. Yeah, I don't think enough people recognize just how hard writing a book is. And I have so much respect for any author now. Now, yeah. whenever I read a book, even if it's a terrible book, I will still <laughs> be so impressed with you because I know how much work it takes to write the you book. You did it. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So it's about a two and a half year process from the time of coming up uh, and starting the writing to actually the book being published. So it started in uh, kind of early spring of 2020. Um, and it's a whole series of processes from finding the agent to finding the publisher and then many, many rounds of edits and feedback. And um, it's a slog. It's one of those things where I found that consistency really matters. That whereas I may have had the flashes of brilliance in the classroom teaching, with te with writing, it's often just a matter of I found I had to find my routine. I had to find that, you know, being like a, a scientist, I tried, well, do I do good writing at night? I'm kind of a night owl. Nope. <laughs> do I do good <laughs> writing in the middle of the day? Nope. I found that what worked for me best was to do first thing in the morning when my mind was fresh. And then I would test and say, am I good writing for four hours? Nope. Can't do that. One hour. No, I could keep going. So I found like two hours in the morning was just about right. And so once I found that routine, then it was about not how many pages did I write, but just can I consistently write for two hours and just get that progress. And do you outline first? I'm asking, I'll tell you why, because I'm thinking about writing a book. Yeah. And I think everybody does, but it's it's this daunting task. Do you outline first? Do you just start writing down thoughts? So is it like this Faulknerian stream of consciousness at first, mm -hmm. and then you organize it? Or do you organize it first and then try to write into it? How does it work for you? From having talked with other author friends, I think there's no right way to do it. And everyone has yeah. their own approach. For yeah. me, hyper outlined. 
I found that the idea of sitting down, the, the book ended up becoming 304 pages. The idea okay. of being like, okay, page one of 304, I would never get started. So instead <laughs> I did a, a long outline and then I really chunked it down and said like, okay, today I'm going to write this subsection, which is three paragraphs. Boom. And then I know exactly. So it took a lot of work up front to get that framework just right. And of course the framework changed as I got introduced to my editor who was terrific and gave great feedback, but I had that structure. And so I sort of knew, okay, this is how it all fits together. And this is the part I'm going to work on today. And how important do you think it is to be able to write? Let me rephrase this. How important do you think it is to be for, for your students as well, to be able to write down the thoughts that they're having in any kind of format and in any kind of style to be able to consolidate the things that they're really thinking. I mean, it's one thing to say things and to do this kind of stream of consciousness, but I always feel like if I can't write it down and explain it to somebody else, then maybe I don't know it as well as I think I do, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love means of getting students to get really clear on their ideas, but to do it in a fun way. So for instance, one of the assignments that I give students is uh, they have to write a children's fairy tale about a change maker. And it's fun because, of course, you get to engage your curiosity, your creativity. But honestly, as a faculty member, it's actually harder. It's harder to do that than it is to write a five-page paper. It's a five-page paper. You've kind of got the format and the structure, and you can just blabble on about some theory. But in, in the case of a, <laughs> a children's fairy tale, you have to know it inside and out. If you're going to explain empathy, you can't go into like the theoretical framework of empathy and do a Wikipedia search. right? You have to know what empathy is and be able yeah. to apply it and show like this character showed empathy here. Uh, and so distilling concepts down into its essence, I think, is a really powerful trait for communicating and for leading change. And I, I try to encourage that among my students. But don't you think this is key as well? And again, I don't know if this is one of the core concepts that you teach, but like simplicity is almost more difficult to create than complexity, right? It's a very complex process because if you can't simplify something down into its core components, and a fairy tale is that, right? You don't get 400 pages to be able to do incredible character development you kind of have to make people understand what that character is like in three lines or four lines. And again, I'm simplifying to make a point. Do, do you get, and this is a hard thing for a teacher, right? But you get sometimes when you give this assignment, I mean, I guess your class is kind of famous enough now that people know that they're going to have to do this, but do you get kind of go, go grown like, oh, why do I have to do this? And then that, <laughs> again, the change in mindset when they're done thinking, wow, that was way harder than I thought. And I had to think a lot more than I had expected, but what the output was pretty amazing to me as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I certainly hope so. You know, one of the things when I'm teaching is I try to think about like, what do I wish more teachers and professors had done for me when I was learning in yeah. the classroom? And one of the things I wish they would have done is explained their why. So like, why are you assigning this thing to me? Like, I get it. I get it after write an eight page paper on this, but, but why? Yeah. And so I always try to lead with that why. So uh, I try to preempt any of the groans, you know, maybe in their head, they're groaning about it, but <laughs> I sort of explain like, this is why and explaining many of the things you said about, you know, the power of simplicity. It's actually harder what I'm asking you to do here, but I, I try to be really upfront with that. So there's no, uh, no guessing. They, they know why they're doing this and, and what the, what the strategy is. Do you think that the other faculty members that teach the same students that you do can see the change in those students in their classrooms as a result of what's happening in your class? Because mm, your class a, must be different. Sorry, go ahead. No, thank you. That's a great question. Honestly, I, I don't know. I should follow up with some of my friends who teach there and see if we could, could do any kind of study. Of course, Berkeley is grounded in empirical research. So you say I have to do like a, a proper control trial. So I don't know <laughs> if we can, can, can really figure that out. But anecdotally, I would love to hear what they say. But it must be the case, right? Because particularly if you're taking undergrads, right? They're still kind of malleable. And if it's a fall class, again, they have a lot of their student career ahead of them. I can't imagine 
a student going through this class that's thoughtful and open-minded and not thinking, how can I apply what I'm learning here to the rest of the things that I'm learning? And frankly, to the rest of their lives, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And that's actually something that I want to study. So at my core, I'm not a researcher, but I do think research is important. So I set out to do a longitudinal study of changemaker development. And so I've created something called a changemaker index, which are some okay. of the key changemaker traits across different uh, dimensions. And then students take this survey before they take the class, after they take the class, and then every year subsequently. And so we can see both the change, measure the delta before and after the class, but also how they continue to develop in the years to come as well. So what have you learned? That's really interesting, actually. And do, do you tell them what you're doing with this? Or do you just give out the survey at the beginning, give it out at the end? Because it's the year after, two years after, three years after that's super interesting, right? To see if that change not only happened, but how much it's been maintained. Yeah, that's right. And so for, for the first time ever, I've been sitting on the data, uh, but for the first time ever in the book, I actually share some of the findings of it. Tell, and oh, so, tell me uh, one, at least. Come on. Sure. So, I mean, it's it's fascinating to see that, first of all, I go into this as a scientist, right? So just with curiosity and say, you know, can people become change makers in as short right. as a, a few weeks? And the answer is conclusively, yes, the data are super clear on that, that there's statistically significant changes across all dimensions, controlling for race and gender and age and, and everything. Yeah. Um, but then beyond that, I also really like studying different um, groups. So studying, for instance, what's it like for MBAs, MBA students versus undergrads? And so what we see, for instance, is that um, MBAs tend to come in with a lot more confidence. They are much more confident themselves to be able to change. But both undergrads and MBA students struggle the same amount with one of the key changemaker traits. It's actually one of the top ones I found that predicts overall changemaker success. And that's being able to influence without authority. So that means that perhaps MBA students in the traditional business world are kind of used to climbing that ladder using their authority, but then I challenge them to try to use influence more than authority. And so even if you're a 27-year-old that has a few years of work experience, you tend to be about as good at influence as a 19 or 20-year-old. And then they tend to develop about the same rate before and after the class. So this was a real big problem for me at work, this idea of having influence without having authority. I'm just trying to get my head around this a little bit. Can you just give a little bit more insight into this, if you don't mind? Because I used to say to my boss, like, well, if I get promoted, then I, people will listen to me if, mm -hmm. if I tell them to do this thing. And what you're suggesting is that that's not really necessary in any yeah, that, in any part of your life, right? No, that, that's right. I mean, Ronald Heifetz at Harvard is kind of the expert on this, and he talks about the power of authority. And there are times you want an authoritative leader. So sure. if there's a, an emergency turnaround, sometimes you need that. But in most cases, especially as you think about the state of the world and working world today from flatter hierarchies, distributed teams, working remotely, working hybrid, um, influence matters much more than authority. And so the old model, if you went to business schools uh, 20, 30 years ago, would be, hey, you know, get that title, get that authority. And then right. this is how you sort of delegate and dictate. Um, in the world today, people tend to not respond well to that, right? We're seeing now that there's this trend of quiet quitting, people kind of giving up on their jobs, among other things. So it's not enough to just be able to force people to do things. You have to do influence, which is harder. It's not as easy as just saying, hey, I'm the CEO, or I'll fire you or else. Um, yeah. It's harder, but it's actually a much more sustainable approach to leading change. So how can you find ways that taps into people's natural curiosity and willingness to be part of something? And if you can use that influence, it's a very powerful way to catalyze change through and with others. Do you feel like you're having more influence in places that you hadn't expected and that this book will do that as well than when you first sat down and conceptualized this course? 
I certainly hope so. If nothing else, then, you know, to be a teacher, you have to practice these concepts yourself. So I hope I've gotten better at influencing <laughs> that authority simply by, by teaching it. But yeah, that, yeah, that's very much my hope is that these ideas in the book will then sort of, you know, be able to influence and a book's a great example. I can't force anyone to sit down and read the book, but right. I can try to inspire them and try to say, Hey, the, you know, this identity of change maker is something you may want to become. And this book can help you get there and then have some ideas that they can try out. I mean, I think at some level, everybody wants to be able to make changes, right. And to influence other people to make changes. And if there's, I don't think there's one size fits all methodology for this, but I do think that what you're suggesting is that there's a mindset change that has to take place. And if you can understand what that mindset has to be, again, I'm simplifying that it should be easier to then encourage people to make the changes that you want to see. Does that make sense? Am am I on the right track at least? I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a very human nature desire to say, hey, I want to be able to affect change around me. And so whether that change is small, just in your family, or in your community, your school, uh, or on a larger scale, in a larger community um, nationwide, the world. I think all of us have this uh, desire for a sense of agency over our lives. And I think being a change maker is an amazing way to tap into that um, latent agency we all have. Are you still working on Start Some Good and helping people in the social innovation and the social enterprise space raise money? Is this something that you still do? Uh, I'm still on the board of Start Some Good, but I'm no longer active day to day. My right. co-founder done a great job continuing to lead it. Uh, and so for me, I'm no longer active in the sort of fundraising space. Um, but in a very fulfilling way, I get to have lots of conversations with social entrepreneurs, change makers, and try to share some of those lessons that I learned and often in many times the hard ways and sort of share some of those lessons uh, with other folks now. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Do you share some of your own failure stories in class as well so that people can feel like, you know, because like you said, you are, as a teacher, you are an authority figure, but nobody's perfect, right? And we all fail at some things or don't accomplish the things in the same way or at the same time frame that we want to. Do you share your own personal stories too? It's so important. Yeah. That's one of the things you can do as a leader is to model that failability, that humility, uh, so it's not just me saying, hey, go fail, but actually showing the ways that I failed. And so I tell a lot of vulnerable stories about my own failure from, uh, you know, job rejections to rejections with Start Some Good. And then um, I think my agent told me that I'm the first author he's ever worked with his entire career that asked for all the failures, all the rejections that we got on our proposal when we were shopping around to editors. Uh, he said, you know, he kind of euphemistically says, oh, Alex, we got a pass today. So that's, that's, a, reject- <laughs> that's a rejection. He said, we got a pass. I said, hey. Could I actually have the list of the rejections and the reasons that they gave? Because I want to show this to my students. I want to be able to say, hey, yes, I got a book deal. Yes, I wrote a book. But also there's some people that said no along the way. And that's okay. I found one amazing publisher. That's all that it takes. I found the publisher that I want. And there are plenty of people that rejected it. And um, I want to normalize that for students as well. If you can do anything meaningful, you're going to get those rejections. And so if I can be the one to share, hey, these are some of the rejections I got. I think that can make it safe for them. Yeah. I mean, and your own experience fits into the framework of the things that you're teaching, right? It's not like you're doing one thing and teaching another thing. You actually went through and did this, got the feedback as well, and presumably made changes to your pitch or to the story that you were telling about the book that you wanted to write, and then finally found the right partner that you wanted to help publish this book. Let, let's end on this though. Is the book Has the book been released as well already? September 13th, it comes out to the world. Oh my God, what day is today? I can't remember. It's, it, it's before that, but let, let's just say that it's before that. So let's try to get this out on, in enough time to let people know about that. Unless there's something we missed, um, Alex, I really want to thank you for doing this today. And you should come back. I'm really curious about, like, I love following up with people. 
Hopefully this isn't the last discussion that we have. Alex Budak, a faculty member at University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Becoming a Changemaker. Tell people where they can find this if they want to. Available anywhere you buy books, amazon.com, among other places. Um, and when you give it a read, I would love to hear what you think. How does it change you? How does it shape you? And what change do you go lead as a result? We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you again for doing this. Thanks, Michael. Great conversation.